today's uh, scripture reading is Exodus 34, 4 through 9. So Moses cut two tablets of stone like the first, and he rose early in the morning and went out on Mount Sinai, as the Lord had commanded him, and took in his hand two tablets of stone. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord had passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. And Moses quickly bowed his head toward the earth and worshiped. And he said, If now I have found favor in your sight, O Lord, please let the Lord go in the midst of us, for it is a stiff-necked people, and pardon our iniquity and our sin, and take us for your inheritance. Open with a quick word of prayer again. Jesus, you are the word of life. And as we read the word written, may you shine through it and may you capture our hearts and may you draw us near to you. We offer this time up to you for your glory. In your holy name we pray. Amen. Well, we've begun um, a short series on spiritual renewal. We began actually two weeks ago and then last week Blaine preached, so you don't remember that. Um, But we're going to be in this series through the end of December. This is how we're kind of finishing the 2022 year, uh, a series on seeking spiritual renewal. And one of the things I want to kind of suggest for us as a church is that just like my various magazine subscriptions to The Atlantic and The Economist, et cetera, et cetera, which need to be renewed every year, it's not a once and done thing. So for the Christian, we also need regular and periodic spiritual renewal. And the reason we need renewal, again, not once, forever, but, but ongoing renewal, the reasons for that are various. There's, there's many. Sometimes it's just because we're so busy. And, uh, and just to survive, just to keep our kind of heads above water with all our responsibilities and obligations, we end up kind of going on spiritual autopilot. And, um, you know, our devotions, if we're having them, become short and perfunctory and We come to church on Sunday morning, we want to worship God, we want to be present, but it's hard to turn off that running list of all the things we have to do. And sometimes that's just the season of life we're in, and God gives grace for us in those seasons. But when that autopilot goes from being an exceptional response to an exceptional season to being the kind of mode of operation we function under, when we're constantly on a spiritual autopilot, well, then our love of God begins to atrophy and we find ourselves in need of spiritual renewal. Sometimes we need spiritual renewal because of a sin in our lives. Maybe it was a sin that we thought that we had dealt with and it's made a resurgence. Or maybe there's a new sin that's come about through the new circumstances we find ourselves in, the new temptations that come with it, and whereas at one point we used to pursue righteousness and holiness and hunger for it, now we've made peace with our sin and we've grown complacent and we need renewal. Or as the example that we're looking at in the story of Exodus with the people of Israel, sometimes God seems very absent 
in the very moment when we need him most. And rather than living in the tension of faith when God seems absent, we begin to fill in the gaps. We begin to find alternatives. We, uh, we look to idols to give us comfort and security. Idols that stay where we put them and are helpfully present whenever we need them. And we find ourselves in need of spiritual renewal. Again, the list can go on and on, but the idea is because of the flesh, sin, and the devil, what that means is that the inertia, the movement of this world is, a, is away from a vibrant discipleship. If we want to love God with all our hearts, we're gonna be moving against the current of where things want to push us. And because of that, we should just expect spiritual renewal will have to be a regular thing for the Christian. And that's why we wanna finish this year by looking at what is spiritual renewal, what does it look like? And that's why Paul, in kind of the theme verse of this series, which we're actually never gonna preach on, funny enough, but it is kind of the backdrop for this. He tells the church in Ephesus in Ephesians 4.23 to be renewed in the spirit of your minds. Because the Christians in Ephesus were just like us. They faced the same struggles, temptations, hardships. And just like us, they too need to be renewed in the deep recesses of their hearts, the deep recesses of our souls. Now, the first two sermons in this series, we're looking at where does this renewal begin? Um, if you remember from, from, again, two weeks ago, we looked at renewal begins with repentance. It begins with that moment we wake up and we see how long we've been on spiritual autopilot. We see how complacent we've grown over some particular sin, or we see the idols that we've begun to look to and to worship, and we feel sorrow and, 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 we, and, 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 we, and we grieve over what that has cost our relationship with God. And not just sorrow, but we also make a commitment to begin to move towards God. Repentance involves both of those, sorrow and a commitment that no matter what it takes, no matter where it'll take me, I'm gonna move towards God. That's the beginning of renewal, that's where it starts. This morning, we're looking at the second part of where does renewal begin. And I want to look at it as kind of like two sides of the same coin. Again, renewal begins with repentance, but on that same coin of where does this renewal begin, it also begins when we begin to remember the name of the Lord. What that means is we begin to remember who God is and what God is really like. And that's where renewal begins. So our outline for us this morning is first point, what's in a name Second, paint, second point, sorry, is the name of God. And the third point is the name of Jesus. To recap again where we are in the story in Exodus, Israel had been in slavery in Egypt. God had delivered them miraculously through the 10 plagues. He parted the Red Sea again miraculously to deliver them again from the Egyptian army. And he brought them into the, the Sinai Desert, where it would be Saudi Arabia today, and he leads them to a mountain called Mount Sinai, and he begins to reveal his law to them. This is God telling Israel who he is, what kind of God he is, what, what he cares about and desires, and as a result, who he wants his people to be, what he wants them to be like. And what seems to be happening is they come to Mount Sinai, they're camped around this, this mountain for a few weeks, and Moses seems to be going up maybe during the day, and then coming back down. So he'd go up to the mountain, receive part of the law, and then come back down and, and communicate it to the people. And we don't know how long he's doing this. But one day, he goes up on the mountain, and he doesn't come back. And he's up there for 40 days and 40 nights. And we know he's coming back, but the people of Israel don't. And all they see is Moses, the one who had come to them in their slavery, who had said, hey, God has heard your cries and your groanings. He hasn't been deaf 
And he's, sent, he's coming to deliver you. Moses, who had represented God himself, Moses is now gone. And with him, God seems gone as well. And so Israel does what made sense to them in their context, which was they made an idol. It seems very foreign to us. We don't live in a place where, you know, Main Street is lined by idols, but that's, in their day, if you were religious, you had idols that represented your gods. And so they weren't trying to reject Yahweh, they were making an idol of Yahweh. And so Aaron says, these are the gods who delivered you out of Egypt. The problem with that, though, is that God had already told them in the Ten Commandments, you shall make no carved image of me, you shall not bow down before it. And so here's Israel, again, two months after God had delivered them from Egypt, after he had done miraculous signs that most of us, none of us can probably fathom what it would have been like to have been there. Only two months later, they're already making idols. They're disregarding and disobeying the direct commandment of God. And they find themselves in need of renewal. And that's kind of why we're looking at the story of Israel as they go through this time of corporate renewal. And if you remember, Moses pleads for Israel as Psalm 106 says, he stands in the breach. He turns aside God's wrath. He says, remember your people and show grace. And God listens to Moses' plea for forgiveness for the people of Israel, but there's one caveat. He says, okay, I'm not gonna destroy Israel. And in fact, I'm still gonna give them the promised land. I'm gonna drive out the nations. I'm gonna give them all the physical blessings I promise, but I'm not gonna go with them. And that's what leads Israel to repent and to mourn. Because although Israel had been faithless in many ways, they had this one moment of clarity, which is that they can have all the goodies in the world, but if they don't have God, it doesn't matter. They can be in the promised land, but if God is not with them, it's dust and ashes. And so they grieve, and they repent, and they mourn. And once again, Moses goes before God and says, will you go with us? And if you remember last time we ended with the comedy of renewal, and that in the way we don't expect, God forgives us, and he says, okay, <laughs> I'll go with Israel, and I'll give you my rest. And here we get Moses. God has told Israel, he forgives them, he's gonna go with them again. They don't deserve it, but he's going to do it. And now Moses is asking for assurance. That's where we pick up in the story. He's asking for, he says, God, we're going into a place where it's dangerous, and a place where we're gonna need you. Give me some assurance that you're gonna be with me. Which is kind of an amazing thing to ask God. I mean, he's like talking to God on Mount Sinai. What more do you need? But Moses asked for more. And that's where we pick up. And, what God, and the assurance that God gives him is he tells him he's going to declare to him his name. So go ahead and look at verses 17 to 19 in chapter 34. I'm sorry, chapter 33, verses 17 to 19. And the Lord said to Moses, this very thing that you have spoken I will do. For you have found favor in my sight, and I know you by name. He's telling Moses, I'm going to go with you, and I will give you rest, and my presence will be with you. Verse 18, Moses said, please show me your glory. It's Moses saying, give me some assurance, God, that you're going to be with me. And then this is the assurance that God gives, and he said, I will make all my goodness pass before you, and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will show mercy in whom I will show mercy. That's why this first point is called, what's in a name? Because we Westerners, we, we read this, and to be frank, it comes across a little bit anticlimactically. It's like, God, give me assurance. God's like, okay, Moses, I'm gonna tell you my name. It's Tim. 
You know I mean? It's like, you're, you're going to tell him his name. Great. That's exactly what Moses needed. So we have to ask, okay, what is in a name, and why is this giving assurance to Moses, and why does this give assurance to us who are talking 5,000 years later? And the first thing to realize is, is, is names in the, in the Old Testament, names in the Bible, functioned a little bit differently. Uh, they would oftentimes pick names that were consciously communicating something about the person, right? There's like Old Testament names like Avimelech, which in Hebrew literally means my father is a king, which by the way is an incredibly egotistical thing to name your son. Like the most important thing about you is me, your father, who is a king. But again, the name is actually saying something about the person. Names would communicate something about the value and the identity and the worth of the person. We name people very differently. Uh, we typically pick names like my coworker did uh, a while back when I lived in D.C., uh, where him and his wife, they already had a kid, so they got someone to babysit their kid. They set aside four hours. He was an educator, so he was really into like, brainstorming. And they got a whiteboard out, and they printed out like, the top 50 baby names, and they did like a four-hour brainstorm session, and they got like, a short list, and they went back and forth. And basically, they're just looking for a name that sounds good. And that's like basically how we pick names. What, you know, this name sounds nice. Unless we're, we have a family name, then it might have significance. We don't typically pick a name to communicate something about a child. But what I want to argue is that still, in the way that names function, even for us, names are far more significant than just a sound. And, and I'm going to prove it to you this way. There's an old urban, urban legend. It is an urban legend. I looked it up. I googled it, and it's not true. But I heard this in high school. You've probably heard this story, too. There were twins born somewhere. Probably changes every time it's told. And the mother named them Orangelo and Lamangelo, which is like, okay, th- those names are really similar to each other. That's not cool. But otherwise, it's fine. But the thing is that the way it was spelled on the birth certificate was orange jello and lemon jello. And she just pronounced it Orangelo and Lamangelo. It's not a true story. But why does that say? But if it was, we're like, that's not cool. Why? Because it's the kid's name. And names actually matter. Why are we so embarrassed when we forget people's names? No one's worried if, like, if you come up to me and say, hey, I don't remember what you wore last week, I don't care. Right? But if you forget someone's name, we're, we're like embarrassed. Why do I, more than 20 years later, remember how in middle school people would make fun of my last name? It's like, I don't remember the other ways they made fun of me, but I remember when they picked on my name. That's not cool. Or, why do we work so hard to find out the name of that person we have a crush on that we see around campus. It's just a name. Because names actually mean something. That's what this first point is getting at. Names actually mean something. They're not meaningless to us. And what's in, what makes a name meaningful is what a name is. This is going to get a little philosophical. This is all for free. You're welcome. But what is a name? A name is a verbal symbol used to refer to a particular person. A verbal symbol a way that we signify, hey, this person, not this category of people, not a certain type of person, but a particular person with their own genetic combination, their own life history, their own future, their own present, their own hopes and dreams, that person. And so, for instance, when I say the name Jeff, who comes to mind for you? It's probably a specific person. Maybe there's pleasant connotations with that. Maybe there's unpleasant connotations. But when I say that name, if you knew someone by the name Jeff, what you think of is what made that person relevant to you. 
Maybe it was a classmate who picked on you. And so what was most salient about them to you, that's what you remember. That's what the name signifies. A name signifies someone. When I say Mike, me, it's pointing to me and all of me. Okay, so this is what I'm getting at, is that a name directs us to who a person is, who they most essentially are, what is most basic about them. Now Moses was in a place where he needed assurance. Israel and their idolatry had had sinned and they were suffering the consequences and they were about to to enter a promised land where nations did not want them there. It was going to be a life or death situation and so Moses needs assurance. Who is God who is going to lead them? And so God tells them his name. In other words, he tells Moses who he most basically is and why they can therefore trust him. We also desperately want to know what is God's name, what is most true about God, what is most basic about him. Again, for Israel, this was not an academic question. This was a live question because of where they're entering. They need to know, is, it, is God the kind of God who's going to get bored of them, right? Like he delivered them from Egypt, but maybe, maybe, maybe he disappeared at Mount Sinai because he got bored and he has other things to do. Or is God the type of God who's going to be distracted? He's, I mean, he's, 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 he's got a lot of other things he's doing. Is he going to get distracted and forget about us? Like, can we trust this guy? What is he really like? That was a live question for Israel. And for us, again, when we come to that place where we realize we need renewal, that becomes a live question for us. And, and how we answer that will determine whether or not we even want to come back or whether we feel like we can come back whether it's worth it to come back. Think about it. You know, in some ways, an idol is a lot easier to deal with than a living God, which is why it made sense that they made an idol. You take an idol, you, you put him there. He's not going to move. He'll be there when I need him. I can put him on my back and carry him wherever I want to go. But this living God, he appears by fire at night and a cloud by day, and he goes where he wants, and I can't control him. In the same way, the idols that we turn to, the secular idols, uh, relationships, vocations, media, just simply food and alcohol, things that we look to for comfort and satisfaction, in, in a very temporary, very superficial way, they are far more dependable than God is. And this is why, frankly, pornography is so alluring, because that avatar on a screen will always be there. So we ask, is God worth it? Who is this God? And then maybe even more urgently we ask, is he going to take me back? Does he want me to come back? That's why this question, the name of God, what is God really like, is such a pressing question. And that's why I'm calling this the beginning of renewal, because again, we may see that we're in a place where we need renewal, but unless we know who God is, unless we find him to be compelling enough to draw us back, unless we believe that he wants us back, we're not going to be able to repent. And so God in his majesty, he assures Moses, he assures Israel, and he assures us, however many thousands of years later, by proclaiming to us his name. And that's the first point. What's in a name? The second point this is where we get to the meat of this passage, which is the name of God. So God has told Moses, I'm going to proclaim my name to you. What's most basic about me? And then we're going to jump forward to where he does that in chapter 34, verse 4 to 7. 
follow along as I read that. So Moses cut two tablets of stone like the first, and he rose early in the morning, and he went up on Mount Sinai, as the Lord had commanded him, and he took in his hand two tablets of stone. The Lord descended in the cloud, and he stood with him there, and he proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed before him, and he proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. These are some of the most beautiful words in the Bible. And part of me, when I read this, I, I don't want to explain it. I feel like it, it'd be like trying to analyze a, a, a masterpiece of, of, of a work of art, and just, we should just sit and, and receive it. But my job as a preacher is to try to explain and apply. But brothers and sisters, this is God's name. This is what's most true about him. He is a God who is first merciful. Some translations will say compassionate. It has the idea of a tender, empathetic love, a love that feels the pain of, or the feelings of the one who's being loved. It's, it's the love that a mom has for her child. If you're a dad, you probably know that a newborn's cry registers in a unique way in the ears of the mom that it does not in the ears of the dad. If you're a dad, and maybe I'm just a terrible dad, this is me being vulnerable, <laughs> but there have likely been times where you woke up and you're like, wow, the baby slept through the night. What a good night's sleep, sweetie. We got a full night. And she's like, you dummy, I've been up three times with the kids. Didn't hear it. I'm sorry. Like our kids need to be belting it out for hours before I wake up, whereas, you know, they hiccup and Mark goes up. And second, when I do finally wake up, there's no compassion in my heart. I'm rationalizing in my mind all the reasons. Like, I feel like I read an article somewhere that it's good to let kids cry, helps them self soothe and regulate their emotions. So, yeah, I'm, I'm fine. We're good. Whereas again, Marco, <laughs> she has compassion. So God is like when we cry to him. He's not annoyed. He's not sleeping. He's awake. He feels our pain. He feels our hopes. Merciful. Second, God is he's Lord, the Lord merciful and gracious. He does, he, he does for us what we don't deserve. He doesn't, just, he doesn't just not give us the punishment we deserve, but he gives us what we don't deserve. And not just that, but when he gives us what we don't deserve, he gives us far in abundance far beyond what is appropriate. He's reckless in the love that he gives to us. He's the king who creates a banquet and people aren't coming and so he goes out into the highways and the byways and he's picking up like the homeless people and, 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 and the strangers and the people who don't care about the king and he's saying, look, I've made this banquet. Just come and enjoy it. So God doesn't just forgive us but he, he adopts us eternally as his children. He's gracious. Third, he's, he's, he's slow to anger. Literally, it means his anger is long in coming. He's patient. Um, he loves us. He understands our nature. He knows how frail we are, how prone to wandering we are. He knows that we're, you know, dust to dust. And so he's patient with us. And lastly, and this brings us it's one of the great attributes of God in the Old Testament. He's abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. I don't, I rarely do this, but I'm going to give you the Hebrew word for this word of steadfast love because it is such an important 
attribute of God in the Old Testament. It's chesed. Say it with me. Chesed. Get some good, you know, throat clearing in there. Chesed. It's one of those words, the way that, you know, nerds will talk about it, such as myself. It has a wide semantic range, which means it is very difficult to capture this word in one English translation. It's such a broad concept. And so when you look at various translations, they all translate it a little bit differently because they're just, they're grasping to try to, to, try to translate and understand what chesed means. So for instance, in the SV, which is a great translation, it says the steadfast love of God. But if you look at the NASB, it says the loving kindness of God. If you look at the NLT, it says the unfailing love of God. The KJV, first says the goodness of God. The CSB is the faithful love of God. And the Net Bible is the loyal love. These are all good translations, and each one of them comes with a different word because it's such an expansive word. My, my personal favorite is actually found in the Jesus Storybook Bible. I'm not kidding. I'm going to cry when I say this. It's God's never stopping, never giving up, unbreaking, always and forever love. Chesed points us to the goodness and kindness in God that never gives up on us, that's faithful to the end. God's chesed is not a fair-weather love. Like when we do well, when we have devotions, when we fight sin, when we serve him, it, 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 it goes well, and then when we stumble, it falters. No, it's, it's an always never giving up love. It's not a naive love as if God's like, oh, I thought you weren't such a prone-to-wandering type person. I didn't realize the person I was bestowing... God knows our faults better than we do. He knows our weaknesses better than we do. Um, it's not an untested love, like a husband and wife at the altar saying, till death do us part, and they have no idea what they are saying. But God's love is tested. He sent his own son to die for us. God's chesed love is the love that flows from the very heart of God. Faithful and good as God himself is faithful and good. And the reason why this became such a powerful and important attribute of God in the Old Testament is that Israel, just like us, would wander and fall and come back again and again to a God who would receive them. And so their great joy, their great praise, what gave music to their hearts, what gave them hope in most desperate situations was that God's, God was a God of chesed, a God of steadfast love, always and forever, never giving up. So Psalm 101.1, the psalmist says, I will sing of steadfast love. That's chesed. And justice to you, Lord, I will make music. This love of God calls people to sing songs, to dance, not in a Baptist church. I think of the Baptist version. I'm gonna sway, calls us to sway or in the most desperate of situations in Micah 7.18 when the northern kingdom had been destroyed and all looked like it was over for Israel. Who is a God like you pardoning iniquity and passing over transgression for the remnant of his inheritance? He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in chesed. The hope in the darkest moments is God's steadfast love. 
And of course, one of the hallmarks of this steadfast love is the assurance of forgiveness that God in his chesed, he forgives iniquity and transgression and sin. And when it uses these three different words for sin, it's not like we're supposed to find like, oh, this is referring to this kind of sin, this is referring to this kind of sin. It's it's saying it's comprehensive. Everything. Everything we've done. God forgives. Doesn't matter what you hold in your heart this morning. It doesn't matter how your conscience may be accusing you. It doesn't matter what shame or guilt you may be falling into. He is one who forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin. What's so significant about this passage, why I think it is maybe the most important passage in the Old Testament in terms of revelation is because it tells us who God most basically is. It doesn't say this is part of God. It says this is his name. This is not the person, this is not the persona he puts on in polite, you know, in in, in, in polite society. It's not him obeying the rules of etiquette, but what it means is that the deeper we go into God, the more we come to know him, the longer we walk with him, all we find is mercy and grace and patience, and steadfast love. It's kind of like marriage, you know? Um, you think you know someone until you marry them, and you really know them. And it's one of the beauties of marriage, right? Because I get to see, um, I get to see that Mariko's earnest faith, and her strength, and her love for people, like, it goes to the roots. It's who she is. I get to see that. On the flip side, that's why getting married is so scary because no one really knows until you get married. Uh, my, my grandma on my dad's side, so my dad's mom, <clears throat> was a remarkable woman. I've often thought that she would have fit in very well at Vine Street. Um, she uh, was a first-generation immigrant from Slovakia. Her husband, my grandpa, died from a massive heart attack very suddenly. When my dad was in high school, his little brother's in junior high. And so my grandma, with her eighth grade education, raised those two boys on her own and lived to be 96. She uh, was independent well into her 90s, living in a little trailer home in upstate New York, and just had that unique combination of like, kindness and just profound strength that we see in so many of our, of our um, specifically older members of Vine Street. So I think she would have fit in well. But one thing I didn't know until I was an adult is that my grandma had actually remarried later in life. So in her 60s, when I was maybe two, she married, she remarried. Um, it was a man who came along, he just charmed her off her feet, told her all kinds of things, seemed like a wonderful man, he wanted to spend the last however many years he had with her until they got married, and then she found out that he was just a controlling narcissist. He didn't want a wife, he just wanted a cook and a nurse. And he began to try to prevent her from seeing her family, he began forbidding her from seeing her family, and so she left him. And it was such a quick marriage, I never even knew he existed until I was an adult. And I remember when I heard, I mean, it, um, it just made me cry to think my grandma, who was such a wonderful person, would go through that. But I think that's kind of what we wonder with God sometimes, which is what keeps us from coming back, is like, what's really in the heart of God for me, a sinner? Because I know my sin. You probably know your sin. What's really in the heart of God? That's why this passage is so important because it tells us his name. 
that again we could spend a thousand years in his presence and all we will discover is more mercy and grace and steadfast love. The truth of the matter is that we are faithless and he remains faithful. We grow proud, we grow self-sufficient, we wander, we're fools in so many ways. And somehow in the mystery of God's redemption, at the end of the day, despite it all, we are God's special possession, his treasured possession. Rediscovering God's name is the beginning of renewal because God in his steadfast love, he woos us back to him, whispering into those dark recesses of our hearts where it's hard to believe, I'm the Lord. I'm merciful and gracious and I'm slow to anger and I'm abounding in steadfast love. This is the name of the Lord. This is the name of God. But I have to point out something, which is that we've only talked about the first half. Although I should really say the first 98% of God's name. But there's more to this. We call it the second half of God's name. This is verse, the second half of verse 7. So God is merciful, gracious, slow to anger, bounding in steadfast love, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. Now, when you read this, there's two questions that come to mind immediately. First, he's just said that he's a God who forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin, but then it says he does not clear the guilty. How is this not a contradiction, right? Isn't forgiving, clearing the guilty? That's one question we have to answer. But then secondly, it seems like God is saying that he's going to punish, for instance, children for sins they have not committed, but sins that maybe their parents committed, or their grandparents, or their great-grandparents. And if that's the case, I'll be honest, that raises a whole host of ethical questions. So we've got to figure out what's going on here, and I'm just going to say that the point of this, what God is revealing about himself, is that he is a God who will always do what is right. Yes, he is loving, he is gracious, he is compassionate, but it is not a trivial love, it is not a sentimental love, it is not a corrupt love. He will always do what is right. And so yes, he's a God who offers forgiveness, but it is not an automatic forgiveness. God does not just wave his magic wand and clear the, 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 the guilt of every person. We have to approach him in humble repentance. God is not like a corrupt judge who's in the pay of a mafia boss who just kind of winks, nudges, lets the criminals go on doing their thing. He is a God who will always do what is right because that is who he is, as righteous and just. But secondly, we got to make sense of this, okay, visiting the iniquity of the parents on their kids and what's going on here. And this is where it's helpful to use some cross-references so we can know what this can't mean. And so in Deuteronomy 24, which again is part of the law that was given to Israel on Mount Sinai, so it's in the same context, God gives an ethical principle where he says, fathers shall not be put to death for their children, nor children put to death for their fathers. Each is to die for his own sin. And there's this ethical principle here that we are held accountable for our sin, not for the sins that someone else does. Now, there is a corporate element in this where, you know, the people of Israel are punished for David's sin and it gets complicated, but this is still an important ethical principle, which is that God does not hold us accountable for sins we have not committed. So then what does this mean, that God will visit the sin of the fathers on their children? And the best sense I can make of it is that 
if the children commit the same sins as their fathers, they will experience the same judgment that their fathers experienced. So a child can't say, well, my dad, my, or, you know, our, our parents were punished for this, and so the punishment's taken care of, we can engage in this sin and not experience judgment. No, 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 no. Again, God will do what is right in every generation because he is righteous and just. And that is the point here. This is the second part of God's name. And what I want to say is that God's full name, his mercy and grace and patience and chesed, as well as his justice and righteousness, together make for very good news. We struggle with God's judgment. Uh, we struggle to fathom how a loving God could send people to hell, just to put it bluntly. It seems like they contradict each other. And, and this is where we kind of have to start being skeptical of our own gut feelings. We have inherited a specific intellectual tradition that gives us assumptions, some of which are good, some of which are not good. And we need to be critical of our own gut assumptions. Because what we find is that the Israelites didn't have the same issue with it. They viewed the whole package as the best news. Again, look at Psalm 101.1. I will sing of chesed, steadfast love, and justice to you, O Lord. I'll make music. For this psalmist, it was the full name of God, God's love and justice together. And the reason for this is that a world without justice is a far worse nightmare than hell. A lot of you have probably been following the war in Ukraine, a war that is instigated and carried out by um, an evil tyrant to satisfy his lust for power. And there's been millions of Ukrainians who've been displaced, who've lost everything, their homes, they've lost their jobs, there's been tens of thousands who've died. And that's not to mention the toll that um, sh you know, uh, supply shortages have cost, of hung I mean, there are literally people starving to death in the world because of the war in Ukraine, people who are suffering without power. And here's the fact of the matter. Almost certainly, Vladimir Putin will die in comfort and affluence, and he will never be held to account for the untold suffering he's caused people. That is almost certain. He'll live a good life, and he'll die in comfort. And he'll join the legion of men and women today who live that way, who've lived throughout history, who never faced human justice. And if there's no divine justice, that's a nightmare. Vladimir Putin may never face human justice, but there is hope for us that he will face divine justice. And frankly, that will be a lot more terrifying than any human justice. This is the name of God. All of it together is good news. And yet, again, the emphasis is not on God's justice. God shows steadfast love to a thousand generations, and he shows justice to the third and fourth generation. That's why it, the first half is really the 98% of his name. But yet God will always do what is right. That is his deepest nature. And of course, Jesus himself was the clearest revelation of the name of God, of who God is, of the one who is merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love, and yet who will do what is right. And this brings us to our third point, which is the name of Jesus in men's discipleship, we've been reading Dane Ortland's Gentle and Lowly, which is an extended meditation on um, Matthew eleven twenty to 30, the verse I read earlier in the, in the service. 
Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Jesus is a visible image of God's name. He's God's character made flesh for us. He is the chesed of God, come as a human being. Jesus himself, the one who is gentle and lowly, is just like God's revelation on Mount Sinai of the God who is gracious and compassionate and slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. And that's why during Jesus' earthly ministry, the broken and the sick and the sinners flocked to him. And that's why throughout the centuries since then, it's been the broken and the sick and the sinners who've continued to flock to this one who is gentle and lowly in heart. And of course, Jesus was a visible revelation of God's full name. God's chesed, as well as his justice. For in Jesus' death on the cross, we see the final resolution of God's chesed and his justice. As God sent his own son in love to bear the punishment of God's justice all in himself. He is a God who loves, but who will not clear the guilty. And renewal begins when we remember, as if for the first time, all over again, this name of the Lord. Not in the sense that we remember information, like, oh, I remember my phone number, but we remember that this is God's chesed for us, for you, for me, That's where renewal begins. And this God will renew us if we in repentance simply ask him. I have a couple quick applications that I'm giving to specific groups in our our church, so hang with me. My first one is to our kids. Here's my application to you. You're growing up in a time when to be considered a successful growing up kid, you're gonna need to start thinking about college in kindergarten. You're gonna need to play six different sports. You're gonna need to be at least the second chair in the orchestra of your school. You're gonna need to be on student government. You're gonna need to go to all the parties. You're gonna need to have a dope TikTok feed. And then in your spare time, you're gonna have to get a part-time job to learn the value of money. I just wanna tell you that there's no better way to spend your time. There's nothing better to invest in than in this God who's revealed to us in Exodus 34. And there's no better way to prepare for a truly successful and fruitful and worthwhile life than coming coming to know the Father who loves you and wants you to know him. If you're a student, oh, students, you probably have already realized this, but these next couple years, you will face a rate of personal, emotional, intellectual growth that will be like anything, anything you've ever experienced before and unlike anything you will ever experience again. You will likely go through five theological paradigm shifts. You will probably change your major at least three times. It'll be like drinking from a fire hose. Maybe you'll meet your future spouse or maybe your heart will be broken. And I want you to know, in all the change and instability of these years, remember Lamentations 3, 22 to 23 which is that the steadfast love, the chesed of the Lord, never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. And they are new every morning. Ground yourself in that love. Find your hope in that love. Let it not only fill your heart, but let it form how you love. 
that you might be walking in the same way that Christ walked. To adults, I want you to know that the Jesus you fell in love with however many decades ago is the same Lord of mercy and grace today. And he offers us the same rest. Uh, Being weary as an adult looks a lot different than being weary as a youth, and you know that. But the, uh, the rest that Christ offers is the same. And finally, to our, to our elderly, this is the God that you'll go home to if your trust is in Jesus for the forgiveness of sins. When you come to the end, the end of your pilgrimage, this is the one you'll come to who will smile on you and will tell you, well done, my good and faithful servant. Let's pray. God, may you renew us. Our efforts are in vain unless your spirit is at work. We want to be a church that is full of the spirit, that is vibrant, that loves you with abandon. And may you make us that. May you renew us. May you make anew in our hearts. May you remind us once again as if for the first time of the wonder of the love of God for sinners like us. We ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen.